When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I actually want to start by asking you if it feels to you like we are in a pivotal moment in how we think about online speech. Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. That's Jamil Jaffer. He runs the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Before that, he was a lawyer for the ACLU. When you want to talk about free speech, he's your guy. Part of the reason for that is that all of the big Supreme Court decisions that defined free speech for our society were decided 50 years ago. Almost every day, I see people tearing each other apart online about what free speech means, especially what it means on platforms like Facebook or Twitter. These arguments have reached a crescendo as Elon Musk moves to buy Twitter, promising a place where speech will flourish. But the problem, Jamil says, is that our current understanding of free speech was shaped by court cases that are older than the internet itself. So I think part of the reason that it feels like a pivotal moment right now is that it is a pivotal moment. We are are now building a framework that will really shape what free speech looks like for this, you know, for this coming generation or generations. There's something else happening, too. Our online fights, whether they're about politics or vaccine misinformation, feel like outgrowths of a democracy that has been put through the ringer over the past few years. The stakes really are pretty high. Getting these free speech questions right, I think, is a predicate for getting these larger democracy questions right. And right now, we don't seem to be getting the free speech questions right. Today on the show, we're going to get a little meta, and not in the Mark Zuckerberg sense. We are going to talk with one of the smartest First Amendment lawyers in the country about online speech and how to make rules that will truly serve the next generation. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. There's a tweet from Elon Musk from March 26th where he says that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square. 
And I wanted to interrogate that concept a little bit, that the public square, once a physical thing like a town common, has truly moved online. The Supreme Court seemed to back that view in a 2017 case called Packingham versus North Carolina. In that case, the court ruled that a North Carolina law that kept registered sex offenders off social media was unconstitutional. In the majority opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote that the internet was the modern public square. I asked Jamil to unpack that for me a bit, to explain why it's so important. In First Amendment law, there's the concept of a public forum, like a city street or a park is a public forum. It's a property on which historically we have used to uh, engage in political speech. Those kinds of public forums are highly protected under First Amendment doctrine. For example, the government can't kick you out of a park because it doesn't like you know, what you're saying. And that was the body of law that we used, that the Knight Institute used when we sued President Trump over his practice of blocking people from his Twitter account. We pointed to that body of law and said, for the same reasons the government can't kick you out of a park because it doesn't like what you're saying, President Trump can't kick you off his Twitter account because he doesn't like uh, what you're saying. Now, it's possible that Justice Kennedy in the Packingham case meant to reference that body of law. And what he meant was, Facebook and maybe other social media platforms shouldn't be excluding people from these spaces based on their viewpoints. You know, that's a kind of legal argument. I think that his um, his descriptive argument, his sort of descriptive statement that Facebook and other social media platforms serve as public squares at this point, I think is non-controversial. If you, if you treat it as a legal pro- proposition, though, I think it's a lot more difficult to defend. Well, because it's not a public park, it's a private company. Yeah, well, that was true of, you know, in a way that was true of President Trump's Twitter account, too, right? President Trump's Twitter account was on private property, it was on Twitter's property. Uh, And yet the courts all held that that Twitter account was a public forum. But it's one thing to say President Trump, a government actor, can't kick you out of this space on the basis of your viewpoint. And it would be another thing to say Twitter can't kick you out of this space uh, because of your viewpoint. These are questions that the courts are only beginning to grapple with. And it's not like there's a single answer that everybody has um, you know, cohered around. It's still you know, pretty contested space. But thinking about it in some ways more as metaphor, it feels like we are maybe circling as a country around the idea of public square without any of the other parts intact without maybe saying, yes, we agree on point A, point B, point C, mm-hmm. just we all maybe think there's something real important here in the middle. Well, you know, I just think about it as the space, the meta, the sort of metaphorical or even metaphysical space in which we engage with each other, share information, debate issues, come to consensus. You know, where do we do those things? We do those things increasingly online. Uh, and increasingly on social media in particular. And so forget the legal stuff, you know, just as a kind of factual claim, those are the spaces whose integrity is important to democracy. This idea of a public square was at the heart of a speech that former President Barack Obama gave on disinformation in April. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. This was the first time that Obama, who had long been friendly with big tech, 
publicly called out social media companies for how their algorithms warp online speech. For more and more of us, search and social media platforms aren't just our window into the internet, they serve as our primary source of news and information. No one tells us that the window is blurred, subject to unseen distortions and subtle manipulations. Jamil, who had a sometimes adversarial relationship with the former president, was surprised by a lot of what he heard. I was at the ACLU for 14 years, and eight of those years were during the Obama administration. And um, I think I probably filed 100 lawsuits against the Obama administration, and many of them related to um, the freedoms of speech and association and privacy in particular. You know, we represented whistleblowers. We uh, sued over government secrecy. Uh, we filed, I don't know how many suits over government surveillance, you know, all First Amendment uh, suits or First Amendment adjacent suits. And I was very unhappy with uh, a lot of their policies relating to, to free speech. I was unhappy with their whistleblower policies. Uh, you know, they prosecuted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than any previous administration. In fact, all previous administrations combined. The Obama administration's record on government transparency was at, at best mixed President Obama defended all the NSA programs or almost all the NSA programs that Edward Snowden disclosed. Um, so I was not, you know, I was not enthusiastic about the Obama administration and the First Amendment. Uh, and I, you know, didn't didn't expect to agree with as much of President Obama's speech on disinformation as I, you know, as it turned out, I did. One of the things I liked about it was, it was sort of um how modest it was, you know, I mean, hmm. it, it started off that it wasn't some big sweeping condemnation. Well, a lot of people come to this issue of disinformation with the idea that if only the government criminalized more speech, uh, you know, why, why don't we just prohibit all of this disinformation? Uh, you know, isn't that the obvious solution here? And that's not where President Obama landed here. Uh, you know, for, for one thing, he starts off by recognizing, I think, totally appropriately, that social media has in some important ways made our society fairer and more democratic uh, and more inclusive. And there are all sorts of social movements, political movements that many of us think have been great things uh, that would never have got off the ground, uh, but for, you know, but for social media. And he starts off by recognizing that. He also recognizes that many of our problems as a society uh, are not fairly traceable to social media, uh, or at least not to social media alone. But then he goes on to say that some of our problems do have the social media companies uh, as you know at their source. Tech platforms need to accept that they play a unique role in how we as a people and, and people around the world are consuming information and that their decisions have an impact on every aspect of society. And he points to the design of the platforms as you know one one place where we could you know look look for uh, the roots of, of some of our free speech pathologies today. In that they incentivize sharing and disseminating more outrageous content because it increases engagement. Yeah, I think that's what he highlighted. I mean, I, I might highlight some other things too, like for example, the fact that some of these platforms are designed in a way that ends up insulating people from counter arguments. And in fact, you know, on a lot of these platforms, you can run uh, granularly micro-targeted ads that reach only a very small community of people. And if that ad contains 
misinformation. Uh, nobody else is in a position to counter it or to, to, to correct it because nobody else even knows that that message reached those people. You're not getting that opposing speech. It's it's just landing in this this little pocket. That's right, and that that is sort of that's a challenge to this fundamental principle that is at the bottom of our free speech tradition. When we come back, what kind of laws should we make, if any, that limit online speech? Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. In his speech, Obama seemed to reject an argument that social media platforms often make, that the best way to counter disinformation or misinformation is through better content moderation. So first of all, I think content moderation is much less significant uh, than these design decisions. But also, I would include in, you know, under the, the, the banner of design, Algorithmic design, like, you know, what what speech is getting amplified and what does it mean to be mar marginalized? Those questions are all questions that the platforms decide, often invisibly or at least invisibly to the rest of us. Uh, but they have a profound effect on what public discourse looks like on those platforms. And I think those decisions are much more important than the content moderation decisions. I think it's like much less important, uh, you know, whether Alex Jones is on the platform or not then it is what happens to Alex Jones's speech when it's on the platform. Another thing I liked about his speech is that he, um, you know, he pointed to transparency mandates as certainly not a total solution to any of this, but, but at least um, you know, a positive, something worth considering. And I do think that you know, one of the things we need most is a deeper understanding of how the platform's decisions are shaping public discourse. And the way to do that is to create more space for journalism and for research that focuses on the, you know, on the platforms. And you, know, you can do that in a few different ways. One is to require the platforms to disclose information to researchers. Another is to require the platforms to disclose information to the public or to regulators. Uh, still another would be to give legal protection to researchers and journalists who study the platforms. If, you know, if Congress could protect the, the journalists and researchers who are undertaking those investigations, we would get a lot more information than we do right now. 
you you are describing the broad contours of a piece of legislation that is sitting in Congress, and and I want to get into uh, that act a, a little bit. But first, I actually want to hear what you didn't like, because I think I think one could make the argument that Obama giving this speech gives a certain sense of people, a certain set of people that like, aha, we need to tackle this mm-hmm. moment. And another set of people like ugh, the liberals want to regulate our speech online. Well, you know, so I guess one thing I would say is that um, this kind of le- the the left right um, spectrum here has become a lot messier. So, uh, yeah, you're right that there are conservatives who look at that speech and they say, look, the left wants to regulate social media. But actually, if you look at these laws that conservatives have proposed, not just proposed, but passed in places like Texas and Florida, they are much more heavy handed than President Obama is proposing we should be in this, you know, in this speech. Both Texas and Florida have passed laws that block social media platforms from banning, censoring or removing users. Both laws have since been blocked by judges on First Amendment grounds. In these Florida and Texas cases, you know, as you say, the, the, the companies are coming into court saying, we are just like newspapers. We are exercising editorial judgment in the same way that newspapers do. And for the same reasons you couldn't regulate newspapers, you can't regulate us. And then you have the states, on the other hand, saying social media companies are common carriers. They're like the phone company and they have no First Amendment rights at all. And so you have these two kind of extreme, in my view, kind of extreme views of uh, or categorical views of the First Amendment. One uh, proposed by the companies that leaves no room at all for government regulation, even the kind of transparency regulation that President Obama has in mind. And then the other version is this one proposed by the states, uh, which would basically give states and the government more generally a free hand in uh, censoring public discourse or distorting public discourse in whatever way they, you know, they, they want to. I don't think either of those uh, views would of the First Amendment would serve our society very well. Uh, and I don't think either of them is required by, you know, existing case law. There, there is a strain of thinking that sometimes comes up in Silicon Valley where executives will say, well, we would step in and police more hate speech. Well, we would do more content moderation, but we're just we're really deferring to the First Amendment here. We are trying to be as as mm-hmm. open as possible. What do you what do you do with that, particularly as it pertains to, you know, these platforms that operate not just in the United States, but are yeah. now going to be, you know, subject to something like the the Digital Services Act in the EU, which is is really going to be much more aggressive about what kind of content might risk a fine. Well, first I would say that what answers make sense for us in the United States, the same answers might not be the right ones for, you know, other other societies. Uh, I do think that uh, because the social media companies, um, because a small number of social media companies uh, now serve as gatekeepers to public discourse or to a large part of public discourse, it's better for our democracy if those companies uh, hesitate before taking speech down, especially political speech. Um, you know, we don't want um, Musk or Zuckerberg or you know any of these companies 
Uh, we don't want to turn over to them the decision of you know, what political speech we hear or which speakers we hear, or which ideas come to our attention. Like that kind of, those kinds of decisions in a democracy should belong, should belong to ordinary, you know, ordinary citizens. I, I think that there are lines that public figures could cross that would lead me to say, it makes sense for the, the companies to take those people down. But as a general matter, I think it's better if they interfere as little as possible in political in political speech. And the result is going to be a lot of terrible speech will stay up. Uh, but I think we have to trust that other actors, um, civil society organizations, the media, other political leaders, you know, will respond to that, will respond to that speech. I want to push back on that a little bit, though, because it sort of sounds like a handful of billionaires are already making those decisions for us if the business models of the platforms are amplifying certain pieces of content Mm -hmm. and certain kinds of speech. Does the regular person ever get a chance to make that decision for themselves? Yeah, no, I think I think that you're absolutely right that and this is what I meant when I at the beginning of our conversation when I said that content moderation decisions aren't as important as the design decisions. I think the design decisions are more important. Um, But I think that's where our attention should be that we should, you know, spend less energy focus on this question of who's on and who's off the platform and focus our energy instead on this question of what happens to speech uh, that is on the platform. That's where I think we should require the platforms to take more responsibility than they have right now and require them to be more transparent than they have until now. There's a bill in Congress right now that would require a little more transparency in how the platforms work. It would make platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram give academics and researchers access to their data. But it doesn't solve the thorny questions about speech. I think we need a First Amendment that prevents governments like, well, prevents the government from intervening in in the marketplace of ideas, from like putting a thumb on the scale for a particular political viewpoint. But we also need a First Amendment that leaves space for uh, regulatory interventions that serve democratic values. So for example, you know, carefully drafted transparency legislation or legislation that requires the platforms to tell people who are deplatformed why they're being deplatformed or privacy legislation that restricts what the platforms can collect about their users. Like if all of that is off limits, if the First Amendment makes all of that off limits, um, then then I think the First Amendment will become a really big obstacle to um, the kind of public, whatever you want to call it, public square, public sphere, digital public sphere that we you know that we need. Did you ever think you would articulate a sentence like that when you were the ACLU guy? I mean, ACLU is, you know, going to the mattresses for the First Amendment. I, I, and listen, here you are saying I don't think it's, this is not it's complicated. I, 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 I'm proposing this not, not because I think there are things more important than free speech. I'm, I'm proposing this because I think this is what will serve free speech best. What does it mean to be a free speech absolutist in an era in which uh, the social media companies have a totally plausible claim that they are exercising First Amendment rights, and social media companies' users have a totally plausible claim uh, that their free speech interests are being uh, suppressed when the platforms you know, exclude them from these private spaces. And governments sometimes have a totally plausible claim that uh, the public needs to know certain things about the companies in order to understand how 
uh, the companies are shaping or distorting public discourse. Like those are all free speech arguments of one kind or another. And the First Amendment, I think, has to account for all of them. Jamil Jaffer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks, Lizzie. Jamil Jaffer is the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And you can check out the free speech project from Future Tense at slate.com slash future tense. We will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.